Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi. I'm Maureen Hoban, one of the producers with Here's the Thing. We're in the middle of our summer staff picks, where those of us at Here's the Thing present some of our favorite episodes from the archives. This week, I want to share with you two interviews from incredible American storytellers, host and producer Ira Glass and director-producer Alex Gibney. As someone who's worked in media and documentary for some time now, I've always been bowled over by the unmatched abilities of Ira Glass. Before everyone and their brother had a podcast, and even before Alec, Ira Glass has been weaving incredible stories on public radio as producer and host of This American Life since 1995. With his unmistakable voice and natural winsome delivery, Ira Glass makes it look easy as he presents tales that can make you giggle as they break your heart, that prove that truth is indeed stranger than fiction, and that just might teach you something along the way. Here's Alec's 2014 conversation with Ira Glass. Ira Glass caused a revolution in public radio, and he is now its primary kingmaker. Glass wasn't the first to share well-crafted stories about so-called ordinary people, but his show, This American Life, connected with a younger generation of public radio listeners, and they became fiercely loyal. Ira Glass has become so popular that the winner of this year's Halloween contest in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, was a dog, the small, white, fluffy type, dressed as Ira. This is a level of fame I didn't quite know existed. Right. Is this what you bargained for? No. no. Has this happened to you? I've never won the Fort Greene Pupster Halloween costume event. You've got me there. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little jealous. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure jealousy is, is exactly the right word, but it's something. It's a weird thing to have happened. Um, How do you feel about, I mean, I listened to Fred Armisen do the episode with you where he's doing you. Yeah. And, and I try to do you all the time. Because you, you fit into a category, although you, yours works, yours is, yours is of a style of announcer, host, journalist, broadcaster, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I hear so many people now on the radio who are the opposite of what I grew up with. 
And I think it comes down to, like, what do you think authority comes from? And back when we were kids, authority came from enunciation, precision. Right. Delivery. And a kind of gravitas that you are bringing to the character you're playing. And I think that, you know, not just me, but a whole generation of people feel like, well, that character is obviously a phony, pretending to be this, like, cartoon sort of like the newscaster on The Simpsons with a deep voice having gravitas. And so I think a lot of us just went in the other direction. And for me, I felt like, you know, any story hits you harder if the person delivering it doesn't sound like some news robot, but in fact sounds like a real person having the reactions a real person would have and be surprised and amazed and amused. So the very thing I'm talking about you were aware of when you were doing your show. And conscious of. Yeah, no, and I I mean, I started off at NPR when I was 19 at NPR in Washington— Doing what? First, it was an intern, and then I worked on a documentary series where I learned a lot of things. By the time I was twenty twenty one, I was a, I was a production assistant on All Things Considered. And so that meant Were you I, going to college? I, between college, basically, I would go Where'd to college go? and come back. I went to Northwestern for two years, and then switched to Brown. Graduated from Brown in semiotics, which is a field of sort of pretentious literary theory, but actually is is all about how to structure a narrative. So it's enormously practical training, and there are things that I learned in school that I use every day to this day. But anyway, then we go back and forth between college and working at NPR. And at first, when I tried to be on the radio, like most people, like I tried to be the official thing. And then at some point, I trained myself out of it because I thought it's not as effective. Or untrained yourself out of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And NPR obviously has like a tradition of people going back to the 70s who talked not like normal announcers, but like people. Susan Stamberg was the host of All Things Considered, which I think people today might not even remember this lady, who really set a tone where she she just seemed like some Upper West Side New York lady, like leaning into the microphone, mentally talking to you over the radio. Did you just say mentally, the adverb mentally? You don't get a, you don't get, that doesn't get much That's an an adverb that exists only on the Upper West Side, but I got it. She was mentally leaning into the uh, microphone. Yes, and talking like a person. So there were other people doing it. I heard people doing it. I was just like, that's the direction I got to go in. I mean, when I think about your show, I wonder what it's like for you editorially in terms of do you sit there and you consciously try to take out of it any uh, political point of view? I mean, the kinds of stories we're doing, I think, you know, when we take on something that's in the news, you know, what we're looking for is a story with characters and scenes and emotion and and looking for a way to to show something new that people don't know. So for example, when we did an hour on Guantanamo, like we didn't go into it advocating Guantanamo should be shut down or it right. shouldn't be shut down. You know, like we, we don't we don't have an agenda that way. Like when we did an hour on it, we did an hour because it had been a couple years into Guantanamo existing. And we read that, I can't remember the number of people, the number of detainees, like a couple hundred detainees had been released. We, we had discovered, like, you know, the U.S. had determined, like, you guys aren't enemy combatants. You guys, you know, go back to Pakistan or wherever. And we had noticed that nobody in America had interviewed them. Just to ask, like, the normal things, you know, that, like, you'd want to know. Like, how are you treated? Do you want to kill us all now? And and so, like, you go into that. Like, the question of, like, what our stand politically on Guantanamo is, it doesn't matter. No, I appreciate that. But I'm wondering, do people sometimes view you as being liberal? Of course they do. Because we're on on public radio, which is seen as liberal. liberal. Though, Though when you look at the studies of, like, what actually gets covered on the news programs and the way it's covered, I feel like the numbers bear out the fact that it is not more liberal than other news sources. That said there's a tone in the way certain things are covered that conservatives hear and from talking to conservatives like I know like that I think that that's a real thing um I think at one point there was a show that we did on one of the elections 
and, and it was about how people voted and why they voted the way they voted. And I had a long series of discussions with these people who were like swing voters because I was fascinated with it. Like, Alec, you just think about like an election of like Kerry versus Bush and you're coming down to like the last three weeks before the election. Who are the people who haven't decided? Like, how can you like, like whatever you say, like those are two very different. What are the bodies. unknowns? Yeah. yeah. Like, what do you have to know? Like, you know them both really well. Like, what? Yeah, exactly. Especially people who are following the news. Like, like what is there to wonder about at that point? And I think in that show, I came out and said, look, I'm a Democrat, just said to the audience, because I felt like there was a point in the discussion in my interviews, people were identifying as Republican or Democrats, and I felt like, why pretend anything but this? Like, usually I vote Democratic. That said, like many Democrats, I, I find them to be the most annoying party and so not representing what I believe on so many issues and so lacking in so many ways and so not doing what I would have them do. So even saying that I usually vote Democrat, I feel like doesn't even get near what my actual politics are. Sure, sure. Um, but if I have to pick, I make that choice reluctantly. It's the same thing as like we've done so many stories about God. At some point, I have went on the air and said like, look, I don't believe in God. Like I'm just going to put that out in front. So take everything you're about to hear with the grain of salt that you should, right? Let's just truth and packaging. And I think that it's different for me as somebody who's on once a week, you know, doing a documentary show that's covering like a bunch of different stuff. It's different for me than it is for like the hosts of All Things Considered or Brian Williams or, you know what I mean? Like it's just my role is different. And so I think I have that freedom. When did you realize you didn't believe in God? How old were you? Teenager. Did you grow up in a religious household? I grew up, it's weird. My parents, we were Jews in the suburbs. So I went to I went to Hebrew school and then went to like the high school version of that. Like I continued past my bar mitzvah. And at some point I realized I didn't, it just didn't add up for me. Like, you know, you're in love or you're not in love. Like it's just like, there's another explanation for everything around me, which makes more sense than there's a big dad who created this all, <laughs> you know. And What was like, your explanation? Just, you know, the universe has been here. There was, like, some sort of—something happened. Yeah, Big Bang. Yeah, something, like, you know, Tadpole people— climbed up on the shores of— uh, Yeah. Actually, when I was 13 and 14, the, like, one of the things that was a huge influence on me was— do you remember, the, the, do you remember these books? Eric Von Daniken was the author, Chariots of the Gods. Yes. Oh, my God, I love those. And I remember being in Hebrew college, Baltimore Hebrew College, and arguing with the teachers there, these old rabbis, about, like, but this passage in, like, Exodus or Genesis, wouldn't this be better explained by these paintings on the ground? You know, like, we were actually visited by the whole theory of it, for people who don't know what this is. It was, like, this series of books, and there was TV specials and stuff, that if you actually looked at it, it seems like what they're trying to tell us is people visited us from outer space, <laughs> and that's, that's what they witnessed. Yes. Scientology really is closer to what we've been doing. Exactly. Scientology has a good point. They're onto it. I remember arguing that in Hebrew college with my professors there, and uh, they were not. They did not buy it. Are you an atheist? No. I, uh, I believe—I don't know what I believe in terms of the specific. I had a Catholic priest once say to me, listen, I, I believe in a piece of many religions— the Jews have something to say, and the Muslims have something to say, and the Buddhists have something to say, the Hindus have something to say. He says, sometimes I think I'm a Catholic because they just own the nicest real estate and have the nicest places to hang out in. Wow. And I mean, this was a priest that said that to me. He says, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I believe in a God. I believe in a, I mean, I believe something had to be responsible for this. And I also believe, oddly enough, as a result of some stories I've heard on your show, 
You know, you know, life itself and stories that come to me make me believe there must be some God behind. This is my belief, not a fact. Well, obviously, my atheist message is not coming through yeah, you, you properly. You, you, the, the subliminal my atheist godless. thing you Yeah, is, 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 you failed. You, I am failing horribly. It's the one thing you failed at, but you failed at that spectacularly. <laughs> now, we know, are there some shows, but when we talk— But about, having said that, I have to say, like, we do a lot of shows on religion. We do a lot of shows on faith because I think it's it's not covered very well. Like, if it's it's a sort of an area of opportunity if you're, if you're a, a reporter or a documentary producer. Like in America, it's one thing that's actually the media does a terrible job with. And it's gotten better over the last 15 years, but still like not so great of covering people of faith and covering them in terms that are – that actually document people's relationship with their faith. Like generally in the media, like there's a whole phase of our show where where, where this was like a big thing we were doing a lot of because my feeling like looking at it the way people who were religious were covered, they would be these cartoon characters, right? Like you you see them in like these right-wing – inflexible, like, doctrinaire in their beliefs. And and when I compared that to the actual Christians who were in my life, they were super thoughtful and way more compassionate and way more just, just the way they lived their religion was so radically different, even though they were very devout, radically different from what I was seeing. I was like, we need to document this because this is a whole territory of stuff. And so we did a whole set of stuff where I went out with kids on their mission trip and we did this thing about this minister named Carlton Pearson. And just we did a lot of stuff because it seemed like an uncovered territory. And obviously like doing that without any, I wasn't trying to bring anybody over to my side. That would be boring. It wasn't interesting. Right. I had a friend of mine who was an actor who I worked with once. He was very devout, very observant Jew, me and his wife. And I once said to him, what does it mean to you? And like, what, what is Judaism to you? And he said, to me, it's the study of how we as human beings distinguish ourselves from the animals. And when he said that, it just leveled me. I'll take that. I just take all these little pieces. And I say to myself, my dad died. And I just had this such an incredible emotional connection to my father. Uh, the president of the United States was shot in 1963. Their energy was such a force in my life and in the, in the world at large. Where did they go? Does that energy that is the human soul and the human essence just dissipate? And is it you know like the, the light switch? Like when you think when you die, it's just over? It's over. I mind. do think that, though I'm always given pause by this a Billy Collins poem called The Afterlife, where the thesis of the poem is that each one of us goes to the afterlife that he believes in. And I'm always scared of like, oh, no, if I believe that, that's what I'm going to get. <laughs> It's funny. I thought the same thing. Someone said to me, what do you think is the afterlife and do you believe in that idea? Maybe they based it off this poem. They said that when you die, it's it's all in your imagination. And they said, what do you think happens in the afterlife? I said, mine's pretty mundane. Mine's pretty sad. He said, why? I said, well, you go into a room and it's a screening room and God is there. We sit down and it gets you some iced tea and you have a sandwich. And he's like, so what do you want to know? And you you look at me and he already knows. He's God. And you're like, you know. He's like, okay. Larry, roll the film. And they show me what really happened in Kennedy's assassination. It was, I want them to start to tell me the truth. When. And but can you also, in that version of it, be like, okay, so on this date in the year, you know, 2014, my wife and I got into an argument. I swear she said this, and then I right. said this, and then she said yeah. this. Yeah, my, but my, she swears. Mine is very cinematic. And I say, they say, okay, show me the movie. Who was the girl that really loved me the most? Roll it. Scene you get your queen, answers. Your, you finally you, get your answers. You, you want your answers. You want your answers. What a shame you don't get to do anything with that information. You know, like as a film, like if this were to be a film, the thing you're describing, it needs a third act. Observing that my afterlife fantasy requires a third act comes instinctively to Ira. He can't help but think about a conversation as if he's the editor 
marking the structural strengths and weaknesses of each anecdote. More of my conversation with Ira Glass coming up. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In January of 2012, This American Life ran excerpts of performer Mike Daisy's solo show, The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs. The episode featured segments from Daisy's piece in which he visited a factory in China that made iPhones. Two months after Daisy's piece aired, a reporter discovered discrepancies in his story. Mike Daisy had made things up. This American Life retracted the story, and Ira and his team had to ask themselves, how did this happen? We were pretty good fact checkers, I thought, before yeah. Mike Daisy. And, and uh, you know, I worked at NPR News, and we, sure. were, we were at the level that we were at at NPR News. Like, we looked into it as well as we could. We talked to over a dozen people who had either been in those factories or were human rights groups that monitored those factories. And, you know, people confirmed everything that he said in the story as things that really happened in these plants. With one exception, he said that the, he met a 15-year-old going into work at a factory making Apple products. And all the human rights workers, everybody we talked to said, like, actually, Apple's, like, super great about that. And, like, it'd be very hard for a subcontractor to have underage workers and has been a leader in this. So if that happened, it was a fluke. And in the original show we did with him, I confronted him with that. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you. I know what to know. Show me a picture of the person, which isn't really telling. But he said, you know, they, you know, they gave me proof. And, and we sort of put it all of that out there. Did that make you angry? Well, then we found out, like, the one thing that we didn't do is we didn't talk to his translator. Right. And he said, look, I got this phone number, but when I call it, it doesn't, you know, it's some lady in China who I met at the hotel. And, like, and so we, you know, we, we, we gave up. You know, we didn't do that, which at that point we should not have put the thing on the radio. Right. After we broadcast, another reporter found that translator, and she said, basically, she was with him his whole time, and all these things that he says happened did not happen. Right. And so— Did that make you angry? 
People trust you. They admire you. No, no, no one faults you for that, obviously. And I know you're not going to say this. This is me saying this. Mike Daisy may be gifted, but he's full of shit. But the thing is, when that happened, did that piss you off? I mean, did that make you angry? I wish I might. I mean, maybe at some level, like, honestly, like, my first reaction was not being mad at him. Um, is it an atheist thing? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, we've just given up on life, yeah. Alec. No. Um, I mean— I mean, honestly, like, the main thing I thought is, like, I just wondered if we were all going to keep our jobs. You know what I mean? Really? Like, I really wondered, like, is this it? Is the radio show over? Like, that was the main thing I thought. I don't know. I just, I just, it was a mix of things. Mad was in there somewhere, but definitely was not the biggest part. Other people in my staff were definitely, like, way madder at him and were sure. mad. Sure. But I had worked with him so closely in adapting the thing for the radio. I felt very close to him, actually, and I just felt like, like, oh, my, like your friend did something. I mean, what we, you know, right. we just met him. Doing you had thing. a bit of a relationship with him. I had a relationship with him. I said, like, oh no, like, what have you done? And that was a way bigger part of it. But but you're asking like, has th- have things changed around the radio show since then? And the answer is is yes. And now, in addition to doing like all the stuff we did back when I worked on Morning Edition, all things considered, to like see that the stories are true. We have professional fact checkers like at the New Yorker or something. And so every script is gone through by fact checkers who we hire and they go back to all the sources in the story and they go back to everything and it's just like, it's a, lot a of work. huge, it's yeah. a lot of work. But I have to say it's been lovely. It's been awesome. What does Ira Glass do in his private time? I mean, I work a lot. When I, you're not working. When you have downtime. When I have downtime, like, honestly, like, I don't have a huge amount of downtime. Like, usually on with the week, sliver of it you have. Um, I walk my dog, mm-hmm. try to spend a little time with my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, what does she do? Uh, she helps run a website for teenage girls with Tavi Gevinson, this now, I think she just turned 18-year-old girl who's starring on Broadway but has this website called RookieMag.com. And basically, Tavi decided that there should when she was 15 years old and in high school, she thought— as a teenage girl, there was all this culture being marketed to her, and none of it accurately sort of described the world that she saw it or seemed to capture the things that were most interesting to her. And so she decided she would make that herself and organize kind of an army of young women to do it. It's three posts a day. It's really funny writing and just like it's it's wonderful. And so my wife helps her helps her. I, I find it. it incredible that even with the slightest prompting, you can give me the bio or the story. You can tell everyone's story but your own. You can tell everyone's story. I can tell my own story. You you, you, you only gave us the dog walking, and you said, and I love that. It was very charming. I try to spend time with my wife. What other, what do you watch news? Do you watch TV? Do you like films, music? I mean, honestly, like, I have seen so little of anything in the last probably year just because um, we have the radio show. We started the second show. I've been touring with a dance show. Um, all over the country. And so on the weekends, I'm either going and making a speech to earn enough money to live in New York City because I still work at a public radio salary and live in New York City, or I go out with this dance show where I tour with this professional dance troupe where I tell stories and they dance in this way. Whose idea was that? That was uh, me and the choreographer. It was the choreographer (laughs) of the dance company. We were trying to figure out a way to work together. She's like, well, let's do a thing where we combine our things. And I was like, yes, let's do that. And you're the one doing the the speaking? Yes. So they must be dancing very fast. (laughs) <laughs> it must sometimes. be some of the fastest choreography. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes, yeah. Um, it must be flying through the air, as a matter of fact. Yes, uh, yeah, but, sometimes. But when, you, when you say trying to make a living on, on a public radio salary, I mean, you, you could pay yourself. I'm not saying this to embarrass you, but you could pay yourself X, and you don't. You fold it all back into the show, correct? Yes. I mean, Why did like, you decide to do that? Because I go on the radio and ask people for money. 
And I thought that it's unseemly to be making a crazy amount of money. If you had more time, what would you do? I think I would just consume more culture. I would I would go to more movies and read more. Like, I still have never seen, you know, half the TV shows that I hear about and I know that I'll like, but I haven't seen. Right. Like, in a few months ago, I watched all of Game of Thrones. At some point, you know, a Did year you like ago— it? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Really? Yeah. And are you saying that in the tone of like, no, you did not like it? No, 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 no. I, 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 I never cast any judgment on what people like in you terms know. of entertainment. Yeah, no, and I watched all of Louie, you know, like, or I hadn't caught up on the light. I, I can watch season. old episodes of The Match Game on the game show network. I mean, that's where I, that, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my comfort zone. No, like Reminds I, me when I was a kid growing up. Love it. But anyway, so so no, I do no watching of anything. Like basically, I'm working. I'll see a friend maybe for food. See my wife. Walk the dog, and then that's that's it. It's midnight, and then I would go to the gym. It's not so super glam. And then if I had more time, I would just basically you're working consume you're more working. culture. You're I feel working. like if anything, it's it's a problem the way I'm doing this because I'm not consuming enough. Do you think it's going to last forever? I don't know. I don't have another plan besides this. Like, this is, I like this. So, like, I like making stuff. I like editing. I like writing. You like I the like show. interviewing people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Like, and people I, love the show. And, and that it, helps. it's secure. Like, it just feels like, oh my God, it's, it's, there are enough people who like it that it's a totally solid business. And then also, it does well enough that we can experiment. I put out a movie with Mike Birbiglia, you know, a couple years ago. And we can, um, you know, we do these events where we do them on stage and beam them into movie theaters around the country. And we did a show at BAM where we had, you know, somebody wrote a musical for it and opera and all this stuff built out of real stories, but out of tr- journalism turned into like a Broadway musical with real Broadway, you know, performers, you know, and so like it's big enough that we can kind of do anything we want with it. And that's just, you know, it's just lovely. Like, I don't know what else a person could want. Do people, when when you do the show, uh, do people, only the people in-house, they pitch the ideas or do people outside pitch you ideas? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, there was a period where, where, I mean, people write into our website and there's a place, you know, where you can pitch a story and then there's a, a person or two on staff who go through that looking for the stories that might work. And there are phases where there's something on the show every week or every other week from that list. Like, it's not unusual that people will pitch us and those stories will end up on the show. So, yeah. I mean, the opening of the show that we did at BAM was the story of this girl, a woman, who accidentally locked herself into a closet. She was an opera singer, but she makes her living partly reading books on tape. And she was in a hotel room, and she's just like, i got to record this book on tape on a deadline. So she goes into the closet and puts, you know, like pillows all around to like cushion the sound. And her computer is sitting in the hotel room, and she pulls the microphone because the computer had a whirring sound. She pulls the microphone into the closet, closes the door. She starts to record. And then uh, she goes, oh, I messed that up. And she's going to go out and start it over again. Let's start a new file. And she goes to open the door, and the door is locked. Like, there's something wrong with the mechanism. She can't get out of the closet. But the thing is still recording. You hear her, all the steps she goes through in trying to get out of this closet, including yelling to people down the hall, some German tourists go by. And so that was just somebody she wrote us. You know, like, that. that's the opening of the show, that, that she told us that story. And, and at some point in the interview, I was like, okay, so if you— you're an opera singer. If you were to stage this as an opera, what would it be? And she's like, I think it would be a minimalist opera, like, you know, just this repetitive music, and I would just sing help, help, help over and over. And I was like, you know, I have the hookup for that. My cousin is Philip Glass. So we had him write. We commissioned that as an opera that we performed on stage at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Thank you.
Ira Glass has a natural talent for creating compelling radio. I wanted to follow up with him and find out why is his show so successful. We have him? You have me. Hello? I have you? It sounded way more romantic than I meant. It did. You have me. <laughs> um, hi, this is Ira Glass. Hi, this is Ira Glass. <laughs> the Very Life. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it because I can't do it when you try. Because to do it, it's like, it's like a state of mind. You know what I mean? It's like a state of mind. <laughs> but you, but you know what's funny is you are someone. When I made that comment to you about the announcer thing and people who are a different type of radio broadcaster, but you are someone who does not have, uh, you know, you've got a, a good delivery and you're a great radio broadcaster and everything. And the speed of it and the velocity of it is obviously a signature of yours. But what kills me is your mastery of what you say. Like, do you go back? Sometimes you have to record it again and again. Or do you just zip through that thing like you're just shooting down a, a luge ride? Oh, I wish I could. I wish I could do that. When we record my parts of the show, I'll do more than one take for sure. Um, but not a lot things. of takes. No, two. <laughs> Can I say, it took me a long time to learn how to perform on the radio. Like, I was so bad at the beginning. I was awful. How so? Like, sometimes I play for students how I sounded, not in my first year or my second year, but in year seven. And I could play for you on your, on your podcast if you want or on your show. Like, like I'm awful. Like, I had not mastered it. I had to consciously set it as a project for myself of I'm going to try to perform on the air the way I talk. Well, we, but you, so you wanted to stop doing what? I sounded like somebody imitating an NPR reporter but failing. So, again, this is not year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year six. This is year seven. This is you last weekend. This, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is last weekend, right. It's not such a long way from the local grocery store to the international debate over whether sorghum and meat production are causing corn to decline in Latin America. Okay, first of all, that makes no sense, but let's keep going. There's a general air of prosperity here, partly thanks to Mexican imports of U.S. grains, which help boost our farm economy. I just want to say, if you're going to be an announcer, just don't (laughs) emphasize every other word at random. But what kills me is you are doing exactly what, like, you know, uh, 60% of all the NPR radio hosts do is hitting that, you know. One of the things we realize about the downturn in the stock market today is the revel, and they're doing exactly what you're doing. It's before I understood that, that to sound okay on the radio, you should just talk like you, a person talks, like a human being talks, like you're playing a character and the character is a human being. Mexico is now one of our biggest grain customers, buying a half billion to a billion dollars worth every year, including corn to feed its people and sorghum to feed its livestock. This helps cut our own trade deficit and benefits everyone in the U.S. economy. But in Mexico, this policy has led to fewer tortillas for the poor and unappetizing tortillas for everyone else. I would just note also that <laughs> that this makes no sense at all. Like, the writing is awful. It's not just that the performance is awful. Like, literally, it, you, like, well, you can't tell what awful. the story not is awful. about. It's a style. I mean, that was you. You were working it out. I mean, it is funny. You do make Kai Rizdal sound like Lenny Bruce, but it's incredible. 
I mean, I, I, there must be an acting version of this because I think when people become reporters, they want to sound like the real deal. You know what I mean? And so you want to sound. I wanted to sound like a reporter, and so this is what I thought. Well, the, you do. the equivalent in, in in the business is I once did a TV show years ago, and in the show there was a woman who was the matriarch of a town, and I had the scene with her where I'm you know kind of shaming her like, well, you know, how could you do this and turn your back? And we did take one, and I was like, you know, how could you do this? And like the tears are rolling down my face. Take two, and finally. Like take through the director goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I go, I'm sorry. He goes, what do you? What, why are you charging it with so much emotion? Like you're playing the whole episode in this one scene. You're putting every beat of the entire. He's like, well, you don't got to calm down. We're going to get there. <laughs> when you're a young actor, you emote and you kind of imbue things with that unnecessarily and inappropriately just to do it. You think that's that. You, you do too much. You think that that's acting. It's you do too I, much. I interviewed Billy Collins, who was the poet laureate who's writing I really love, and so idiosyncratic. Like, he so sounds like himself. And I asked him, like, did you always write like this? He's like, no, at first I wrote like a beat. I thought I was a beat poet, you know, like, and I tried to write like that. I think it's common that people try to do, like, the official deal that they think it is before they realize, like, no, I'm going to do a version of me in this. Is the show reflective of who you are? I mean, the show reflects my taste. But also, I have to say, the taste of my coworkers. You know, like, it's not just mine at this point. Like, it's something that we all share, and I happen to be the front man. In that, in that way, it's different than, than it was from the beginning. Like, I am the front man for this thing that we make together, like somebody who's in a band that's been playing for a long time. What tips do you have for people that are interviewers? Oh, wow. Um... What tips do you have for me, quite frankly? I think, I mean, I've, I've heard tons of your shows, and I, I really like your show. I think you're a very skilled interviewer. Um, and one of the things that you do, an interview is a party, and you're the host of the party, and the interviewee will do what you do. What you model is what they do, too. Like, mm-hmm. it's just human nature. And so if you tell a lot of funny stories, they will tell you funny stories back. And if you tell personal stories, they'll tell personal stories back. And I feel like there was a phase in your show where for whatever reason you had on a series of people and it was like Herb Alpert mm-hmm. and uh, I don't remember Dick Cavett was like this, but Herb Alpert was definitely like this where people who went through their lives and were hugely successful and then had their hearts broken or had failed and then had to claw their way back where in those interviews you talked about yourself in this way that made them talk about themselves more it's not exactly an interviewing trick, but in interviews, you know, I will talk about myself with the interviewees because I know that if I talk about myself in a way that's real, first of all, they right. feel safer because I'm also talking about myself yep. and will open up more. And then they talk about themselves. And so it's like a fair swap. And the other thing I try to do is like with Albert is a perfect example of the first question I ask myself is what are they used to? Herb Alpert and his partner, Jerry Moss, sold A&M Records for like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars back then. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy that had artistic success as a musician. He was very admired as an instrumentalist. He and had he as a, many hits as like the Beatles. Exactly, yeah, he, he was, he, like he was top of the charts number, back then. Yeah. And, then. and then he has his career as a record producer with all these legendary acts. And then they walk in the room and so many people in the room might go, I don't know who that is. But you have to sit there and go, this person was big time once. I mean, they were big. 
You know, and you got to treat them like they're big. Oh, that's so interesting. At one time, they were, you have to treat them with the respect that they once commanded. I, I, the, the, the phrase I always use is, what are they used to? And I give it to that them. That is so interesting. I you see, I never interview anybody that famous. Like, I don't interview anybody who's big. I sort of took myself out of that game because it made me so nervous. And also, I think that that's a different kind of interview than I'm especially good at. Like, I feel like interviewing somebody who's famous you're constantly battling against the fact that they've been interviewed so many times and had to tell their story so many times. And so you constantly are having to struggle for an angle in on them that will seem alive to them and and no knock against them. Like it's hard to be interviewed over and over and over about your own life and how many stories mm-hmm. do any of us have and how many anecdotes do we have that are even worth telling mm-hmm. other people, especially a group of strangers. And then the thing that I think Terry Gross does really beautifully and the thing that I hear you do is like, it's almost like an empathetic act of like, like what is the world to them and how am I going to angle something in that will get them to say something? Like I remember one of my favorite questions I ever heard Terry Gross ask, she, she, she was interviewing Ricky J you know who that uh-huh. is, right? Yes. The, the magician and um, and sort of scholar of magic, but also an incredible uh, card magician. Yes. And um, and super smart man, Jesus. Anyway, so, so, so she's interviewing him and yeah, she says to him at some point in the interview, uh, this thing which requires like so going inside his head, she says to him, um, uh, sometimes, are there ever any magic tricks that you do where the thing that we don't see that you know is happening is actually more interesting than the thing that we see? And he totally got excited. He's like, yes. Wow. He's like, yes, absolutely. And she says, well, can you tell me about that? And he's like, oh, no, of course not. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> you fool. <laughs> you child. Yeah. yeah. But for her to even get to that question means so imagining her way into his life. And I feel like when interviewing goes well, like somebody's just has good taste about doing that, you know? Ira Glass. Having worked in the documentary genre for many years, I've never seen a filmmaker with the reach and prolific output of director and producer Alex Gibney. I've encountered many friends with an interesting doc idea that needs to be made, only to realize, well, Alex Gibney's already making that documentary. Called the most important documentarian of our time by Esquire magazine, the Oscar, Emmy, and Peabody-winning Gibney directed the films Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, Taxi to the Dark Side, and Going Clear, among many many others. His films wrestle with tales of power and corruption, cults and corporate greed, in the public interest and in search of the truth. He's not afraid to ask the hard questions and help shed light on the most complex topics of our time in a way that truly no one else can. Here's Alex's conversation with Alex Gibney from 2021. Gibney's most recent film, The Crime of the Century, which he wrote, directed, produced and narrated for HBO, tells the origin story at the heart of the opioid crisis poisoning our nation. Big Pharma celebrated its marketing muscle, using parties to lure doctors to write scripts. This was a new drug cartel. There were drug dealers wearing suits and lab coats. Basically, here's some money, write some scripts. Yes, I'm looking at this and I'm going, clearly we're breaking the law. Alex Gibney has made more than 30 films in the last 20 years. In 2008, he won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature for Taxi to the Dark Side, his film on the CIA's use of torture. Whether he's taking on Scientology or Russian interference in our elections or iconic figures like Steve Jobs, Lance Armstrong, and Frank Sinatra, 
Gibney never flinches and his stories stand up. In fact, he can't think of a time when he wanted to reissue one of his docs to make a correction. I, I can't think of a time when it did happen. And I think about that a lot because I try to find a moment in time where it feels like we're absolutely right. And sometimes, you know, I'm afraid that things may come out that would cause me to want to redo it. But I, I, I sort of feel like the films represent a certain wisdom at a moment in time. And it's it's best to leave them. I am kind of following up on a film I did and doing another film to kind of dig a little bit deeper. The film I did, uh, Taxi to the Dark Side, mm -hmm. I'm doing a kind of follow up to it. But I've never been motivated to really go back in. It's, it seemed like such a, a painful process. But I usually do think about, like, if I'm going to end this film here, why are we ending it here? And will it stand the test of time? When the film is over, do you ever privately follow up about certain aspects of it? Does your caring, does your curiosity, does your concern end when the film is distributed? No. The ghosts of all my films tend to follow me. And I often keep in touch with sources and, and interview subjects. And in odd ways, they keep coming back to films I make henceforth. So they kind of reverberate. It's, it's a little bit like that moment in, in Ghostbusters where they say, don't cross the streams. Well, my streams are constantly getting crossed. It seems like characters from one film are intruding into another. They all stay with me, which becomes a little bit vexing. Sometimes it's hard to keep them straight. In your career, your fabulous career, you've made 30 films or so in the last 20 years, won an Oscar. But of course, documentary films have become content for streamers and, and major, major broadcasters. What are your observations about that change during your career? What was it like in the beginning? Well, in the beginning, it was terrible. My wife used to tell me, I want you to go out and get a job, and whatever you do, don't mention that you're interested in documentaries, because they'll kick you right out the door. So I had to be very cautious. And then there was that terrible era of cable television where every channel had to be branded, which meant if you were clicking through channels, as soon as you got to a channel, it had to look like it was the History Channel or whatever. And which meant that as a creator, you were just cranking out sausages. It was the worst possible thing. But then I discovered, particularly for political documentaries, there was a moment where theatrical films could say things that were pretty potent so long as you made them entertaining. And that was a huge revelation, which changed everything. And because suddenly you weren't operating in a commercial environment where it was the least common denominator and basically you were trying to sell audiences to advertisers, people were buying the content. That is to say, they'd go to a movie because they wanted to see the movie, not because they wanted to buy soap. So th that was great. And I think that's what helped to explode the moment that we're in now. My only concern about the streaming environment is the extent to which some of the streamers begin to start relying too much on their algorithms so that they come to you and say, well, our algorithm says that at, you know, minute 32, you should really be changing the narrative to this so that we'll keep our viewers. We're hearing a little bit of that. And that to you me are. would be a nightmarish. Now, when you talk about your company and you talk about what you're producing and, and, and not producing, I want you to explain What's the difference between an executive producer and a producer? There's a couple of different types of producers. How do you function as a producer in your company's work? On the projects where I'm named as a producer or an executive producer, I, I generally have a creative role. And sometimes that has to do with raising the money, but often it has to do with 
having some say or guidance in terms of the overall creative direction, though, you know, we try very hard to empower our directors to do mm. films the way they want to do them. But sometimes on a series in particular, where you're coalescing around something, like I did a series for Netflix for a couple of years called Dirty Money, which I was very proud of. It's all about corporate malfeasance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we purposefully engaged directors to do things their own way. That said, you know, it came out of my experience on Enron, which, which was one where you invest in the wild criminality of the perps. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of colorful, kind of heist-like vibe mm -hmm. that you engage in. So as executive producer, I'm, I'm trying to encourage the directors to lean into that kind of thing without being overbearing about it. So sometimes I'm the beard and sometimes, right. I'm, uh, sometimes I come, come on a little stronger than that. You now have, what, like 100 or 120 people working at Jigsaw? So the company itself, that is to say permanent employees, is fairly small. It's like 14 or 15 people. But at times, we, we can have as many as 200 people working in the, in the space on various projects. So that's where things get pretty daunting. Are you ever sitting in your office screaming into a cushion or you're going to cry <laughs> and you're telling your staff, please don't bring me any more projects to do? Because there's the fear you're going to become the Jeff Koons of documentary filmmaking, where like you're running from room to room and going, yes, no, change this, brighten this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I really try. I mean, that would be the stereotype. And, and I do scream into my pillow, but usually not because of that. I mean, if, if I can get projects made, great. But I purposely tell, you know, the other executives at the company, there are many projects here I don't want to be involved in, not because they're bad projects, but because it's important that they run themselves. Because otherwise, I get spread too thin. And who needs that? Then it becomes a kind of proxy system. The whole idea is to create a company that will run of itself and last long after I've left the field. Now, you have a, a great volume of work where you are developing material, making films and series and so forth, limited series, with some great, great writers. Some great, I mean, just Keithy alone and Larry Wright, who I worship. Because you'd worked with Larry before on Going Clear. Going Clear on my trip to Al-Qaeda and, and also, obviously, Looming Tower. So what was your first connection with Wright? Somehow we were put together on my trip to Al-Qaeda, which was a play that he had done about a one-man play that he starred in about the writing of The Looming Tower. And we got together on that, and I did a doc about it. It's, it's a part, half of it, or a lot of it is the play itself, and then we cut in and out of the play to do various documentary things. And we got on really well. And so then we were determined to do other stuff together. I, you know, I have a kind of a shorthand, I think, with writers, because my dad was a journalist, and that's the business I was supposed to go into. It was around me all my life. So in my films, while I make them consciously as films, they also <laughs> they have what I would call journalistic baggage. That is to say, I'm really invested in, in a journalistic aspect of them that tries to get the facts right. But with somebody like Larry Wright, it's a similar process in terms of the storytelling aspect of it, you know, at, at greater length in the New Yorker pieces or in his books, which often come out of his New Yorker pieces. There is at once a kind of fact-finding discipline and also a storytelling discipline mm -hmm. where you're trying to engage 
an audience to come along this journey with you. And part of that is investing in the propulsion of the narrative, which is, I mean, that's storytelling, right? So Larry and I got on really well because he's always talking about stuff like that and, and devices that he uses in his writing and, and so on. Going clear, that was maybe the biggest collaboration we had in terms of impact, though Looming Tower was also, you know, had pretty broad reach. When you do uh, Crime of the Century, when you do with something with HBO, the budget's pretty high, correct? It, it is. Relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, though, and on this one, it, it got a lot higher than the original budget because our original deal with HBO said we were going to do a two-hour film. And then when we showed them the material, they said, well, this is clearly, you know, going over the bounds of the two hours. You've got much more material than that. And they let us expand it to a, a four-hour and in the case of Crime of the Century, I mean, to be honest with you, we actually started out working with the Washington Post. There were some journalists there, Scott Hyam and Lenny Bernstein and, and others, who had first made me kind of aware of the breadth of this story. And along the way, you know, I, I decided they had, were focusing mostly post-Sackler. And I, I decided I really needed and wanted to tell the Sackler part of the story to get the breadth of it. And that's what led me to Patrick. And in fact, Patrick and I ended up teaming up on not only this, but also a, um, a scripted version of the Sackler story called Painkiller, which is going to start shooting later this fall. When you're working on the Sackler story, as well as perhaps other stories, is there ever a fear of litigation? I mean, talk about a deep pockets opponent if you wound up getting litigated. Were you ever afraid that they would sue you? Yes. And that's why the reporting has to be really good. Right. And I give a lot of credit to HBO for being really rigorous about that. But once you have the facts right, being very brave. I mean, I learned that on Going Clear. You know, there were a lot of lawyers attached to that film, but we were very good about getting our facts right. And it's not only the stuff that's in, but the reporting that surrounds it. That's what gives you the foundation to put some of the stuff you put in the film. And so with Patrick, because we were working in different media, we were able to share things that we might not otherwise have shared if he was, say, another filmmaker. And he would give me some documents. I would give him some documents. And also we could geek out with each other. I mean, when you're deep into a project like this, very few people, particularly significant others, want to hear from you about the arcana of the opioid crisis. You know, it's like, okay, hon, that's enough. You know, we you're in bed at night time. and your wife's like, honey, what's wrong? And you're like, look at the molecular structure of this active ingredient. Look at this molecule. Have you ever seen a molecule? Now, but when you're doing these projects, you talked about all the lawyers attached to Going Clear. We were talking before about how the early days for you, because you work so much in unearthing truth and facts, and there's a journalistic stripe to what you do, that you've got a staff of people doing research, and maybe you have a part-time lawyer. I'm kind of joking here. And now your company, uh, the difference is you've got a lot more people on the payroll doing research, and you have 10 lawyers on the payroll. You know what I mean? Like, do you need more of everything to get the facts clear? You know, we don't operate the company that way. And, and actually, while we started to veer in that direction, I think we're going back to baseline to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. What we do is try to set it up more as units, you know, try to function not as a machine or a factory, but more like a studio where each uh, film or series has its own people 
and and it's a small but dedicated group. And attached to them are, are sometimes lawyers we frequently work with, and sometimes journalists we frequently work with, but they're attached to that particular project. So each one is bespoke, it has its own DNA, and that, that tends to work out better because sometimes these things take a long time. Like Crime of the Century took close to three years to do with a small group that really gets intensively into the subject. That's what allows it to happen rather than a kind of big machine which attempts to crank these things out. They can't be cranked out because the rhythm of them sometimes depends on when you get documents or when you get people to talk. They have a pace of their own, yeah. Um, but I'm not even talking about the creative DNA or biology of the of project to project. I'm just talking about resources in terms of when you're first starting out, you might not have everything you need. And as you become this phenomenally successful filmmaker, one thing it affords you to do is to have more people come on and do more research and deepen your research and have more legal uh, help to protect you. Now, you know, I was in Sundance. I saw you there. I went to the screening. And uh, I'm in that rarefied position where I'm friends with Tom. You know, I mean, he's, he's a friend in terms of my career. You know, we don't see each other for long periods of time where we pick up where we left off. He had me come into a couple of uh, smaller parts and uh, two MI movies and so forth. And I've often speculated, and I even wrote in my memoir, I thought, I thought, what was it? What did he need this involvement in this organization, in this, uh, in this uh, faith or whatever you want to call it? What did he need it for? I wasn't quite sure what, it, what his purpose was. You know, he has everything, you know, wealth and fame and uh, legacy and the respect of the community. He has everything you could possibly imagine in a career as a, as, as a movie star. So what did this add to his life? And I, I, I speculated about that in my book. I, mean, I came up with a, an answer. But when you were doing Going Clear, the Scientology community which is diverse. I mean, there's different people. It's not all just Tom Incorporated, maybe, but all those people have been able to, in some way, shoo away any real close examination. And, and when I watched your movie, I was mildly taken aback by how deep you got. Your film was among the first people from a major filmmaker to say that the, the institution is guilty of certain abuses. I mean, they abuse people. Their attitude to me was always like, hey, man, we're not hurting anybody. You know, we manipulate people no more or no less than U.S. military recruitment companies do. You know, I mean, we have a certain kind of a thing we do to get people to want to join and sign up with us, but no one's being abused or hurt. And you... and, and what was the genesis of that movie? Why did you decide you wanted to go further and look into that even further? You know, what's interesting about that is that I had been offered to do that movie any number of times, and I had always turned it down because I always felt it was too fringe. There weren't that many Scientologists in the world, as opposed to, say, the <laughs> Roman Catholic Church. I did, I did a film about the church, and coincidentally or not, two weeks after it premiered, the Pope resigned. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I was familiar with deep-seated religious organizations and also, you know, the pushback you can get. But in the case of Going Clear, it was Larry who convinced me Larry Wright, who convinced me to take it on, there's a phrase in his, uh, you know, subhead of his book is the prison of belief. <laughs> and that idea was really interesting to me because then it was a deep dive into Scientology and indeed the abuses of Scientology. I mean, that, that's the reason to be concerned is that the prison of belief leads to real human rights abuses. But the other reason I was interested in it is because people like to demonize Scientologists as crazies. And the prison of belief allowed me to put Scientologists 
in a mainstream tradition of how people invest or get lost in a prison of belief, whether it be religious belief or political belief, and can't get out, even though the bars of the cell are open. Mm -hmm. So that's what really motivated me to get there. And then as we dug in, we took testimony and checked facts and found out stuff that other people hadn't found out before. And And I actually had a pretty big impact on the Scientology community itself. There were a lot of people who either left the church or who as ex-members of Scientology suddenly felt empowered to speak up in a way that they hadn't been able to do so before because because Scientology using its threat of litigation because they had mm-hmm. launched the maybe the the most expensive uh, lawsuit ever against the media company when they went after Time Warner you know people were afraid mm-hmm. and HBO was incredibly impressive mm-hmm. in terms of its ability to back us up uh, once we convinced them that we had the goods what was the first time you picked up a camera as a child? Were you interested in filmmaking as a child? Were you a huge film goer? I, I was into it as a kid, and I was always into cinema. But the thing that I think really changed me or turned me around were, were these great film societies at Yale. And there was there was always an interesting film on every night. You know, this is pre-video. So you, you'd go to these film societies and sit and watch. And And at the time, documentaries and fiction films were, uh, distinctions weren't made. It wasn't like one was up and one was down. They were all interesting. And I can remember, you know, two in particular that really floored me. One was Gimme Shelter by the Maisels Brothers, Mm -hmm. you know, about the Rolling Stones. And the other was Exterminating Angel by Louis Bunuel. And I thought, wow, you know, the, the, the possibility for expression in this medium is so enormous. So that's when I started to veer away from what my dad had in mind for me, which was to be a print journalist. Did you seriously consider that? I did, I did. Uh, but um, he lived in Japan for a lot of his life, and I was studying Japanese literature at the time, which meant I was like head buried in these endless character dictionaries. I started to veer away and, and, and found my own direction. But he really wanted me after college to go and take the interviews at Time, Life, Newsweek, you know, and, and, and go into the family business, which is what he had done. What did you study at Yale? Japanese literature. <laughs> yeah. It's good. And, and, and I'm impressed because of all the Japanese documentaries you've made. It's incredible. Well, I did study under Donald Ritchie, the great Japanese film critic who knew so much about Kurosawa. And I'll give you one, I'll give you, I can do one film quote in Japanese, which is, And that's, uh, that's the end of Yojimbo. He says, I'll wait for you at the gates of hell. So, oh, my God. God. Now, when you, when you make, so you're studying Japanese literature at Yale, you're not, are you making films at the same time? I did. Uh, you know, I was studying film with a famous documentarian named Murray Lerner. He did a lot of those docs about the Newport jazz and folk festivals. And Ed Instorf, who now teaches at Columbia. And so she was, she was a, one of my advisors. I mean, she was very young then, as, as we all were. I, so I, I was studying film, and, and ultimately, toward the end of my sojourn there, I, I was starting to, to, to move into that territory. And then I went to UCLA Film School. So, so you go to graduate school, and, you, and how many years were you in L.A.? Uh, well, I ended up staying in L.A. for a good many years, uh, like 12, 13 years, but, and I never actually finished UCLA, though they're happy to... Claim you. Cling me to their bosom now. But... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I loved it there. I just I got a job with the Samuel Goldwyn Company right. at the time, mm-hmm. and I started doing things like cutting exploitation trailers. What exploitation trailers did you cut? Oh, 
there was one called, my favorite was, one called Shockwaves. Uh, it was a film about mutant Nazis who come up from the ocean floor. Wow. That's where they went, to a secret ca underwater cavern. They manufactured a group of mutant Nazis that couldn't be killed, and their ship sank somewhere in the Caribbean. And then one day, a fishing boat happened to dislodge it, and up they came out of the, out from the yes. water. I thought they were in Buenos Aires. Peter Cushing, the, the Wait, Peter Cushing was in it. Peter Cushing was in it. Brooke <laughs> Adams was in it. Oh God, that was I mean, you Peter should make Cushing. a documentary about that. Well, yeah, the the other trailer I did was for uh, it was for a TV trailer I think for the first assault on Precinct Thirteen, and there was one that Nicholas Meyer wrote called Invasion of the Bee Girls. These were women who were half human, half bee, and when they'd have sex with you, they'd sting you to death. I I, I know that woman. I yeah. know her. Yeah, <laughs> I went out with her a few times. Yeah, I got I got out on stage, but she tried. Yeah, she tried her best. Now I had a small part in Looming Tower. I was very grateful to come and work with you guys. And I understand you're doing more of that, correct? You're going to be doing more narrative work? Yes. With luck, there's going to, I'm doing a feature this coming year. And this is one that's a real passion project. It's a story I, I've been thinking about for a long time, and, and it took a long time to get the script right. But I'm really looking forward to doing it. Who wrote and it? A guy named Matt Cook. He wrote uh, Patriot's Day, which was directed by Pete Berg. But interesting to me, he was a, um, in the infantry in Iraq. And this is a this is very much of a war story. It's actually Vietnam War, and it's what it's really about is how hard it is to be a hero. And with Looming Tower, what was your input into that? I mean, you know, Larry, Danny, Futterman, and I were um, you know co-conspirators early on in terms of coming up with the kind of the overall concept because Looming Tower is a vast book, yes. and so how to contain it and how to focus it, and we, we decided to focus it on this battle between the FBI and the CIA in the run-up to 9-11 and to focus on Tahar Rahim's character, uh, you know, Ali Soufan is the, the guy in which he, he was based, and, and Jeff Daniels' character, John O'Neill. And obviously, you know, I mean, you play George Tennant, who was a critical character in this battle between the FBI and the CIA. In terms of the overall conceit, I had a lot of input. I, I think that you know, it's fair to say that Danny and I had some <laughs> creative differences on it. And I won some and lost others. But that's the way things go. We'll have more of Alex's conversation with director Alex Gibney after the break. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing. Alex Gibney is known for his films that challenge entrenched power. But he also has a deep catalog of work featuring musicians, from an early blues series with Martin Scorsese to Jimi Hendrix, James Brown, The Eagles, The Rolling Stones, and Frank Sinatra. When Gibney is working with a subject as lionized as Sinatra, I wondered, is there an expectation he'll put a shine on their legacy. Trust me, as the Sinatra family will tell you about some of the conversations we had, they weren't always pretty. They were uh, of the opinion that I didn't shine the statue enough. Though, though I, think, I think Tina, over time, came to, to become a much bigger believer in, in, in what we had done, even though she was the skeptic going in. So, you know, I had editorial control, so I could do what I wanted. I was focused in this film, though, a little bit more on Sinatra, the the musician, and his kind of Gatsby-esque character who kind of represented both the American dream and the American nightmare. And that, to me, was was interesting. Because I, I have to be honest, I mean, Frank Marshall was the one who, who encouraged me to take this project on. And I was not a big Sinatra fan. I knew him as kind of the guy who you know, hung around with Spiro Agnew, and I, I wasn't that interested, but I became, you know, in doing the film, which is one of the great things about doing docs, you become curious and you learn about a subject. I became a huge admirer of his in terms of his ability to tell stories in three minutes through his voice, uh-huh. but also the tension, the rough and tumble tension between where he came from and and where he was ending up. And, you know, we could have we have gone deeper into the mafia stuff, probably. And, but I think that there was enough there to give you a sense of what was going on and that it wasn't like we skipped it. And one of the things that we got that was so valuable, I mean, not only did we get this 16 millimeter film of his first retirement concert in 1971, which we kind of used as a structure to tell the story of his life, but the more important thing we got were a couple of audio taped interviews that were done at great length because part of the problem with most TV interviews, particularly back in the day, they were either rolling these huge 
video cameras where, where you're having to sit under these massive lights and everyone's sweating. Or they're film cameras and you're changing the magazine, you know, every 12 minutes. Right. With audio, you could really have a conversation, which is what, I, of course, I try to do when I'm doing my interviews, to right. just have a conversation rather than ask questions. And it was those interviews with Sinatra, the audio taped interviews, which I think he was doing to explore whether or not he might want to do you know, an autobiography. Right. Those are the gold for us yeah. because they were very candid as well as a few sort of off the cuff kind of Q&A sessions he did, including one he did at Yale, which was wildly fun, you know, because when you got him in a moment where he didn't feel, he wasn't kind of pre-thinking his answers. Right. It was gold. It wasn't and you so could really feel yeah. his pain, his ambitions, his passions. It was, it was great. And, and his, his sort of profane reactions to everything around him. Now, for you, do you tend to be with the same group of people shooting? Do you have a, do you have a crew that you prefer? Or have you mixed it up with the people that you've used for your cinematic crew? Well, I've mixed it up a lot, but the, there was one woman, Marise Alberti, who shot, she shot The Wrestler, she shot Creed, but she also shot Enron, Taxi to the Dark Side, and others, and Armstrong Lodge. She was a key collaborator for me early on because she took a weakness of mine, which was cinematography and visualizing the frame, I came up as an editor and really expanded my horizons in that area. She's an extraordinary talent because she bridged the worlds of documentary and, and fiction. So Marie's the key collaborator for me for a long period. She was also do, did a bunch of, of Going Clear as well. But then the editors have been, I've been just blessed. I mean, yeah. and those people I tend to go back to over and over and over again. Alison Elwood, Andy Grieve, Sloan Clevin, Mikey Palmer. Now, people view you, I mean, you're heading off, uh, it seems like, into a more dedicated period of making narrative films, but people view you as a great truth seeker. You know, you want to go out and, I don't want to say catch the bad guy, I don't want to make it like it's a prosecutorial, but exposing abuses of power seems to be a really, uh, in my mind, an obviously uh, potent theme in the work you do. Does it ever fade? Or are you, or like you describing the chemical molecules here? What, right, that's to say, are you still walking along the beach of vacation and you're looking at your phone going, God damn it, I can't believe these people did, you know? <laughs> is outrage and indignation follow you everywhere you go? I'm afraid so. <laughs> uh, and, and I wish it wouldn't. And you outline my vacation. I'm about to go on a vacation for two and a half weeks and I'm sure I'll be consumed with the issue of torture when I should just be dipping my lobster claw in butter. Thanks for listening to this week's Summer Staff Pick. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and myself, Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. Alec Baldwin will be back next week.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.